show me the way to oh, I'm taking my time on my ride. These aren't my favorite songs. They're not even necessarily the best songs, but rather my life as the playlist. In recent weeks, the news of forced sterilization of migrant women in ICE detention centers, along with the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Trump's nomination of People of Praise, ultra-religious conservative Amy Coney Barrett to replace her, means millions are primed to lose their health care, and the right of everyone with a uterus to obtain a safe and legal abortion is in jeopardy. Over the next several episodes, I'm going to discuss issues related to reproductive justice, with today's episode focusing on the United States' white supremacist ideology that has forced thousands of women of color to be sterilized against their will, while forbidding women, majority white, from obtaining tubal ligations, even when they want one, both with the goal of creating a white theofascist ethnostate. If you think I'm being alarmist or overdramatic, well... Oh, that was me gesturing at everything. I realize you can't see that over a podcast. Let's start with current events. In an Associated Press article last week, Don Wooten, a nurse working at an ICE detention center in Georgia, made startling allegations about the treatment of the women detained there. Wooten filed a whistleblower complaint against the agency last Monday, and has since spoken out on MSNBC over her concerns that a high number of hysterectomies were performed on immigrant women, surgeries that they didn't seek or didn't fully understand. Representative Pramila Jayapal stated that 18 people at this facility underwent gynecological procedures, quote, with a clear intention of sterilization, end quote, without obtaining proper consent, making it clear this is a pattern of conduct within this facility. The accusations are part of an ugly truth in our country, a country which has repeatedly violated the bodily autonomy and maternal rights of poor women, women of color, and incarcerated women. This abuse and dehumanization of women is connected to the early 20th century eugenicist movement led by sadistic men like Charles Davenport, who advocated for, quote, the science of the improvement of the human race by better breeding, end quote, which was a civil, no, that's not right. Well, it was his way of saying he wanted to stop everybody other than white women from birthing children. He hated that industrialization, immigration, and changing gender norms were resulting in declining fertility rates and birth rates among white women. And while many of us erroneously believe that the eugenicist movement was quashed after Nazism was defeated in World War II, and are maybe only familiar with such practices because of TV shows like American Horror Story, their second season deals with this. However, just this week at a Trump rally in Minnesota, he told his nearly all-white supporters that, and I quote, You have good genes. You know that, right? You have good genes. A lot of it is about the genes, isn't it? Don't you believe the racehorse theory? End quote. The racehorse theory is literally the same theory espoused by Nazi eugenicists and that Hitler used as justification for murdering 11 million Jews, disabled people, LGBTQ plus people, and the Romanis. His MAGA crowd cheered Nazism and the media barely blinked. But it's not only Trump. Congressional Representative Steve King, well, former now, who has called himself, quote, champion of Western civilization, end quote, which he has also called the superior civilization, in 2017 stated in an interview on CNN, quote, I've been to Europe and I've spoken on this issue and I've said the same thing as far as 10 years ago to the German people and to any population of people that is a declining population that isn't willing to have enough babies to reproduce themselves. I've said to them, 
You cannot rebuild your civilization with somebody else's babies. You've got to keep your birth rate up, and you need to teach your children your values. End quote. KKK leader David Duke praised his comments on Twitter, writing, God bless Steve King. I happened to visit my parents in South Carolina soon after King's interview, and as I stood in my father's living room with a Christmas tree lit in the background, patted me on the arm and said, Sarah, you've made some mistakes. I had two kids prior to marriage and also had an abortion, although I'm not sure he's aware of the latter. You've made some mistakes, but you did your part for Western civilization. You had three white babies. I will never forget how vile I felt in that moment. The open racism and misogyny, a punch in the gut. My father, who rarely compliments me, complimented me for doing my part to advance a white supremacist movement. And I will never forgive myself for what I did next. Which, because I was stunned, was almost nothing. Weakly, I responded. I'm not sure I should be congratulated for that. After which he grew silent. Other than the occasional email pertaining to family news, we haven't had a real conversation again. I'll always regret not repudiating his words more forcefully, although I have done so later in those few emails, and that at 40 years old, I still found myself unable to stand up either for myself or for my values in that moment. Not standing up for our values in moments like these are a huge reason we are where we are. Black race founded on blatant denial. Economics, subsistence survival, deafening silence and social control. Mama told me, can't you be a lady? Your duty is to make me the mother of a pearl. Wait until you're older, dear, and maybe you'll be glad that you're a girl. Eugenics led not only to mass murder, but forced sterilization of women of color. In 1927, the Supreme Court legitimized state eugenic laws when it upheld in an 8-to-1 decision in Buck v. Bell, Virginia statute, which required that men and women had to be institutionalized in order to receive eugenic sterilization, which led to over 70,000 forced sterilizations and women being forcibly institutionalized solely for this purpose. Women of color were specifically targeted, Latino women in California being forcibly sterilized at much higher rates than white women. From 1900 to 1930, 370 Native American women were sent to the Canton Indian Insane Asylum to be sterilized. Government doctors lied to the general public, saying that these procedures were medically necessary, just like ICE is lying to us now. In the late 60s and early 70s, the height of the civil rights movement, white Americans panicked over the idea of racial justice led to Congress passing the Family Planning Services and Research Act which subsidized sterilization for Medicaid patients with zero measures to safeguard against abuse. And even the word panic, it just used it, but I don't like it, because it generates empathy, when really this is a movement just based on hate. Black women, Puerto Rican women, and Mexican women were sterilized, including at teaching hospitals, at significantly higher rates than white women. Judge Gerhard Giselle concluded in the 1973 landmark case Relp versus Weinberger, in which he ruled that doctors must obtain informed consent before sterilizing someone in the United States, that up to 150,000 poor women were sterilized under federal programs under threat of losing their welfare benefits, their ability to keep themselves and their families alive. However, many reported signing consent forms under duress. From 1973 to 1976, over 3,000 Native women of childbearing age were sterilized illegally, many without consent forms at all, 
and without doctors adhering to the 72-hour waiting period. Helen Horner, an operating room technician, described one incident. A few months ago, a woman walked into the hospital with cramps. The doctors thought she had appendicitis and decided to do exploratory surgery. The surgeon, an intern, rotating through gyne, thought her appendix looked fine, so I thought we were going to close her up, but then he started to look at her tubes. He said, we should take her tubes. They don't look good. I couldn't see anything wrong with them, so I said that we shouldn't do a tubal ligation until we got a second opinion. But this surgeon kept insisting that her tubes be tied right then. Not knowing what to do, I got really angry and made them call the head gyne. A message came back to close her up. If I hadn't gotten angry, who knows what would have happened. The woman was only 23 years old. Black women were so disproportionately coerced into sterilization procedures in the southern states, they came to be known as the Mississippi appendectomies. And incarcerated women, who are also more likely because of our racial injustice system to be women of color, have also been sterilized against their will. Doctors under contract with the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation sterilized 148 women between 2006 and 2010 without approval. And in 2017, a Tennessee judge offered incarcerated women a 30-day jail credit in exchange for sterilization. Many states in the United States currently require transgender patients to undergo sterilization to have their gender reassignment surgeries approved. Now that social media has led to greater awareness of this issue over the past decade, racists in the medical system, well, the racist medical system, has changed its strategy, now offering and encouraging women of color to undergo long-term birth control procedures, like Norplant, an IUD insertion, doing these procedures for free, but then charging exorbitant fees when women change their minds and want to remove the devices. And not all of these procedures are the same. Some sterilizations cut off the fallopian tubes, preventing implantation, which is horrific enough without consent. But some procedures, like the violence enacted against migrant women in detention centers who fled danger to escape here to protect their families and to build new lives, have had full hysterectomies, forcing them into early menopause and potentially causing lifelong health problems. Currently, according to the National Survey of Fertility Barriers, in a study of 5,000 women, more than twice as many black women have had tubal ligations than white women, despite black women being less likely to have health insurance. Black women and Latina women are encouraged to stop reproducing, whereas white women are encouraged to reproduce as much as possible. Historically, black women have been forced into low-wage service jobs, paid far below their worth, and then devalued as mothers, while being expected to care for white women's children. Currently, black moms of elementary school kids are 11% more likely to be in the workforce, but overall earn 21% less than white moms. They're more likely to have zero time off and no worker protections or retirement funds. Yet despite black mothers working more hours for less pay and being less likely to receive welfare benefits, specifically cash benefits, racist depictions of the black mother as welfare queen started by Ronald Reagan in the 1980s and were perpetuated by mass media with major magazines like Time and Newsweek far more likely to depict black families in articles referencing welfare or welfare abuse than white families, despite, again, black families being far less likely to use and abuse welfare. Almost nobody abuses welfare anyway, but that's a different topic. We do not value black women in the United States, but even more so, we do not value black mothers, and our depictions of black families in major media are often racist. 
As Lauren Hill sings in her 2012 song, Black Rage, which she performed in 2014 as a response to the murder of Michael Brown in Ferguson. Quote, Black Rage is founded on blatant denial, squeezed economics, subsistence survival, deafening silence and social control. Black Rage is founded on wounds in the soul. End quote. Meanwhile, white mothers are glorified, and white mothers with many children are especially glorified. Look at shows like John and Kate Plus 8 and 19 Kids and Counting, Sweet Home Sex Tuplets and Kids by the Dozen, all these shows that were popular in the early 2000s. All of the large families had white mothers and nearly all depict white children, except for John and Kate, whose children are biracial. Because while the United States enacts eugenic violence against Black and Mexican and Puerto Rican and Native women, white women are celebrated for having babies, just like my father congratulated me to perpetuate good old American white supremacist theofascism. There is an entire movement dedicated toward this end called the Quiverful Movement. This conservative Christian group was formed in the late 1970s as a response to changing laws and cultural norms with the Roe vs. Wade decision, the availability of birth control, the end of the tubal ligation law in 1972 that forbid women in the United States from having this procedure unless the life of the mother was in danger the rise of feminist movements, and fears over declining white birth rates. Folk singer Peggy Seeger was singing songs in the 70s like, I'm gonna be an engineer, challenging gender norms and expectations, with lyrics like, quote, Well, I started as a typist, but I studied on the sly, working out the day and night so I could qualify. And every time the boss came in, he pinched me on the thigh, said, I've never had an engineer. You owe it to the job to be a lady, the duty of the staff is to give the boss a whirl. The wages that you get are crummy, maybe, but it's all you get, because you're a girl. Then Jimmy came along and we set up a conjugation. We were busy every night with loving recreation. I spent my days at work so he could get an education, and now he's an engineer. End quote. And then, later in the song, quote, He said, I know you'll always be a lady. The duty of my darling is to love me all her life. Could an engineer look after or obey me? Remember, dear, that you're my wife. What price for a woman? You can buy her for a ring of gold. To love and obey without any pay. You get a cook and a nurse for better or worse. You don't need a purse when a lady is sold. End quote. I highly recommend listening to the song because it's empowering, and in the end she becomes the engineer she set out to be. But if these lyrics sound antiquated, they're not. Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett believes that women should submit to their husbands and that most contraceptions and all abortions are murder. In the 1970s, Nancy Campbell's magazine, Above Rubies, encouraged stay-at-home moms to have as many children as possible. Mary Pride's book, The Way Home, Beyond Feminism, Back to Reality, in the 1980s, helped the quiverful movement to spread. Pride cites the Bible verses from Proverbs, which she says are the basis for the movement. Low children are an heritage of the Lord and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Their doctrine is rooted in white supremacy and upholding patriarchy, and wives must formally submit to their husband's authority. Because they have so many children, often the older children are responsible for the feeding and care of the younger children. This is possible as most quiverful families homeschool. 
They also tend to live in rural areas so that the wives and children are isolated and therefore less likely to befriend those outside the movement or have the ability to escape. Vicki Garrison, a former wife of the movement who managed to escape after 16 years, turned to atheism and refers to her husband now as a tyrant. Eva Edinger and Karen Darkwater, former children of the Quiverful movement, started a podcast in 2018 called Kitchen Table Cult, where they discuss the trauma they experienced and also the trauma of mothers and children in the movement. And they've also connected this movement with the rise of Trumpian Christo-fascist ideology. Even in less extreme movements, like Quiverful, or the People of Praise cult to which Amy Coney Barrett belongs, women don't have ownership over their bodies. According to the most recent surveys, 70% of doctors declined performing tubal ligations for women 26 and under, and others whose husbands disapprove of the procedure. Only 32% declined the procedure for women under 26 if their husbands agree. Yes, you heard that correctly. Your likelihood to have a procedure to control your own reproduction is largely contingent on whether your husband approves or not. Physicians are also less likely to perform the procedure on a woman who doesn't have kids. As one friend told me, she's always known she didn't want to have kids. She was refused the procedure three different times. She says, quote, Finally, at 37, I was told I should just yank out all that junk, since I wasn't using it. I had endometriosis, also not believed for years, so they wanted to remove everything. But by then, I had a healthy distrust of every OBGYN, even the good ones. End quote. So not only was my friend forced against her will to manage a fertility she didn't want for nearly two decades, she also had to suffer from endometriosis pain. It's no wonder she distrusts doctors. I get that this is a permanent procedure a lot of the time and that physicians worry patients will regret it, but 96% of women, an average for multiple studies, stated they have no regrets at all, and the remaining 4% said their regrets were mild or fleeting. Even so, it should still be the right of every woman or every person with a uterus and reproductive organs to make that decision for themselves. I too wanted to have a tubal ligation when I was nearly 25 years old. My doctor refused because I wasn't married and he didn't think I had enough kids. When I did end up marrying, my husband and I amicably agreed to have one biological child together, and then I would have a tubal. We never even discussed whether he should have a vasectomy, a far less invasive surgery, which is also more easily reversible, but that's an issue for another time. When we met with the OBGYN to tell him our plan, he looked right in my husband's face and asked him if he agreed to the procedure. After my husband said yes, only then did my doctor agree. It's always bothered me that my right to procreate or stop procreating has hinged on two men agreeing that I could make that decision. I can't think of a single decision that a man can make only when he has the approval of two women. However, my experience still wasn't as shocking as what happened to another friend. She says, quote, I was 41 years old, still cut wide open on the operating table following an emergency C-section a month early with a full cardiac team on hand. When my OB asked me again if I was really sure that I wanted to go through with the tubal, this was my second pregnancy. Both were severe hyperemesis gravidarum from four weeks along until delivery. With the first, I lost 19 pounds. I'd lost 35 by week six with the second. 
I had gestational diabetes, and the reason for the emergency C-section was asymptomatic atrial tachycardia, 175 beats per minute. My daughter was delivered and sent to the nursery, and I was sent to the cardiac ward and eventually transferred to Mass General Hospital for a cardiac ablation, knowing all of the above. My OB, a woman no less, still didn't want to perform the tubal I'd decided on months earlier. But you make such beautiful babies, she said. End quote. And let's note that women, white women specifically, have long been complicit in eugenicist movements. While I would absolutely not equate the abuse of forced sterilization of women of color with the abuse of white women in the quiverful movement or white women who have been denied tubal ligations, all are examples of women who have been forbidden to make their own healthcare decisions. And again, with the nomination and likely confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett, our access to healthcare and our ability to make our own healthcare decisions are at risk like they've never been in my entire life. And it's easy to say, well, of course there are extremist movements like Quiverful or extremists on Twitter who hold antiquated positions, but look around. These movements are growing. With the 6-3 to three majority on the Supreme Court rolling back abortion rights, birth control rights, it's always been dangerous to be a black woman or a Latinx woman or a native woman or an Asian woman or a Muslim woman or a transgender person in the U.S., but now it's the most dangerous time for white women in the past 50 years. So now we finally see white women who in 2015 were silent about abortion rights or police brutality, discussing their fears on social media, posting Black Lives Matter hashtags, and lamenting Trump's attempting a coup. And while I'm glad more people are paying attention and becoming activists, it should not have taken the fear of returning to a pre-Roe versus Wade era for us white women to do so. And let it not be lost on us that Don Wooten, the nurse who had the courage to speak out about the horrors at the Georgia ICE facility, is a black woman and single mother of five, who said she'll take a target on her back to stand up for what's right. She's an American hero. Here's a woman who is solely responsible for the care of her five children, risking her livelihood and her safety to protect women in a racist nation that doesn't even value her own life. And yet, Don Wooten continued asking questions, even when she got demoted, even when she was threatened, even though she stood alone and didn't have a movement or a union supporting her. She refused to stop. I think I'm going to end here today. In my next episode, we'll continue this discussion on reproductive justice. First, depending on when you're listening to this, we have days, weeks, until the 2020 election. And I know that we've been tweeting, we've been posting on Facebook, we've been speaking to each other, we've been donating to causes. But I really, really think it's time to figure out what our next moves are. So I'd really like to talk to you. If you have a story you'd like to share about your experiences with contraceptives, abortion, or navigating the medical system as a woman or transgender person, please email me at lifeisaplaylist at gmail.com or DM me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Also, if you're an astute listener who loves Top 40 as much as I do, you might have noticed that I didn't list the charting position of either of today's songs. And that's because I couldn't find a single Top 40 song that fit the issues I discussed today. Songs? Yes. Billboard Top 40? No. If you can think of any I missed, let me know. Until next time. 
What do you love about music? To begin with, everything.